the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. Big news yesterday, uh, and that was the announcement that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is going to retire from the oh. from the Supreme Court. Wow. Uh, and, and that is the... I guess the bigger news comes this because now this has opened up a seat on the Supreme Court. Mm. President Biden, this is kind of his first shot at um, uh, at putting somebody on the Supreme Court. And we know how important that's been. President Trump placed a couple different people on the Supreme Court. And uh, any of you who has, uh, who has taken uh, any government classes in school knows uh, that the Supreme Court is an enormous deal, a very big deal. Yes. And so President Biden is going to kind of have his first shot at it. I'm sure that's going to go really well with the divided policy. Oh, it's going to be go. It's going to be interesting Ooh. to watch this play out, isn't it? Ooh. It's going to be a ton of fun. Uh, but Aubrey, I'm ready. You and I are going to disagree right off the top here. You ready? This is what the common good is about. Disagreeing with respect and nuance. So this is actually really good for the show. So here we go. Uh, President Biden, in in when he was running for office, and it has been said again by his press secretary yesterday, uh, categorically said, when there's an opening on the Supreme Court, I'm going to fill it with an African-American woman. Yeah. So he said, this is it. Uh, no matter what, much like he did with his vice president, right? He said, I am, I already have my profile and my profile is this race, this gender, this is what's happening. Right. Uh, I think that that cuts the legs out of the respectability for the person he chooses. And I have a problem with that. I, 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 I am all for him choosing a high, a, uh, they, there's a list of, of the um, African American women. Cause now that's all anyone's talking about, right? Who yeah. are the African American yeah. more than qualified? Obviously. So this is, not, this is not me going, I don't want an African American woman on there. I think what he's done now is when he chooses the African American woman, everyone's not everybody, but certain people are going to go, well, she's not the most qualified. She's just an African American woman. And she's the most qualified African American woman. I don't understand the, we're going to, even if you had that in the background, you know what my preference is uh, to do this. Uh, I, I just have a big problem with that. And the Supreme Court is actually about to hear a case about college admissions around this and some other things. But I don't understand it. And and I don't uh, I, I, I even don't understand it for the person that he eventually chooses, because they're going to need to answer those questions as well. I don't understand why you wouldn't get up and just say we are going to find the best person uh, the most qualified, even if you're like my preference is to find an African-American. I believe you disagree with me on this. Yeah, I wholeheartedly disagree with you. And here's why, because that's what they've been saying for the past 233 years. And not once have they elected a black woman. So so I, you're you may want to say we're going to hire the best in the land no matter what. 
your bias does not go towards minority women, period. And so I think this is actually a bold move. It's the right move. And look, Brian, it's the highest court of the land. Anyone who gets nominated into this position is not going to be an average person. Like, obviously, these names of these women that are coming out are able to fill this. So in that sense, I don't think it's token. I think it's an intentional decision to see some diversity, to see new representative. And again, the highest court of the land needs to represent the American people. I think this is the right move wholeheartedly. I have no problem with it. I'm excited, actually. Uh, and again, I want to make sure you hear me correctly. I will be thrilled when he puts an African-American woman on there. I don't know why you just say it from the front. Would you have a problem if Biden said, uh, because this isn't out of the realm of possibility, would you have a problem if President Biden said, uh, you know what, I'm going to choose, uh, he gets away from, from uh, he goes to identity and he says, you know what, for the second one, I want to have a gay man. I think it's important that we have a gay man yeah, because we're yeah. going to be arguing cases that deal with homosexuality and other things. So we need now that diversity on it. And right. he starts choosing people by the diversity that they bring about. Yeah, I, I still I mean, I, I think it's problematic when anyone takes racism and sexuality and tries to put it in the same like category. So I don't like that argument. But no, because that still is a representation of who America is right now. And again, we're talking two. I mean, this is from 1789. We've never had a black woman in this position. I don't see what the problem is. I, and I actually think it is more it speaks of more integrity to say, here's who we're looking for. than if you um, didn't say that, because now there's no question like Biden's being intentional about like for the first time in American history, we're going to put a woman, hallelujah, and a minority woman in a position of power to make decisions in our nation. Like that should be applauded. It shouldn't be a problem. Ah, okay. Okay. What do you, do you think businesses, schools, everything should be able to take the same tax? Yes, I wholeheartedly do. Absolutely. Until the power dynamic changes, I absolutely do. How do we know when the power dynamic has changed? When there's enough equality, Brian, white men have had power our entire nation's history. This should not be a problem to let go of some of the power to let the minority voices have a little bit more. When there's more equality at the table, when there's diversity across the room, then absolutely you can have a different conversation. So, okay, let me keep pushing you. Yeah. Uh, you've got a high school son. He goes to college. He has the grades to get into said college. He has better grades, uh, better test scores to his dream college to get into. And he is told explicitly, we're trying to become more diverse. So you're right. not getting into our college, but somebody who might be less deserving to get into right. the college is getting in. You're going to tell your son, that's how this should work. Yes. And a hundred percent. That's not going to happen. Number one, I think that's fear mongering from the white population that says that there's enough room at the table for everybody. And two, yes, like we have these conversations with our kids all the time. They know as kids who are in a position of power in this nation that they might have to make some sacrifices to make change. My question for you, Brian, let me push back on you is why this is so important to you. I, I think just as you're saying, we don't want to make the decision simply uh, in a racist way, just on race. I don't understand why he's coming out and saying we want this to be. 
here's the deal. If you asked me well, who would I like to see him put up uh, for this, I would tell you an African-American woman. Then why do you have a problem with him saying it and being intentional and, and a person of integrity about it? He's not being deceitful about it. He's saying this is what we're doing. Because I think it screams to this is why this is the number one reason we're choosing this person instead of saying the number one reason we're choosing this person is because of the qualifications. But it's a person of qualification. Like he's not picking my neighbor down the street. You know what I mean? Like, again, this is the highest court in the land. So this person will have the qualifications necessary. Possibly. Uh, possibly. Possibly. But I- Brian, it's the Supreme Court. They're not going to hire somebody who doesn't have the qualification or raise somebody up to the position that doesn't have the qualifications. Uh, OK, I-, I think things have been said about people on the Supreme Court now. But I- all I'm saying is if we want to be a place and I get where you're coming from, I totally do. Maybe I'm Pollyanna about this. Then uh, if-, if we don't want it to always be about race. Uh, either way, then then let's not make that the number one criteria. Stated At some point, criteria. I agree with Stated you. But criteria. we are not, let's not there make this, yet. There's not the equality yet. So once we get there, I wholeheartedly agree with you. But we're not there yet. I don't know. I just have a problem with it being stated, like being the criteria, because I think I think he did this with Kamala Harris. He said, this is exactly what I'm mm-hmm. looking for. And it's been used against her uh, as opposed to here's the number one person I want for my vice president. For it's whatever been used reason, I want by some people. It's also been celebrated by a lot of the population as well. And it would have been celebrated in the same way without ever stating up front that this is the criteria. I don't agree. I don't agree with that. I think that's the Pollyanna piece. I see where you're coming from, but I don't think it would have been celebrated across the board, period, because there's too much racism in our nation. Whew. This might may not be the last time. This has been fun. Let's, uh, Brian, every- I love you and I respect you. No, I really, I got the blood moving. This is fun. This is good. <laughs> We'd love to know what you think. Go on our social media page at Common Good Talk. You could also, uh, that Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All right. Talking about disagreement, Dr. Jim Dennison is coming on next. He's the co-founder and chief vision officer of the Dennison Forum. He wrote a book about civility and arguing well, but his new book is called The Coming Tsunami, Why Christians Are Labeled Intolerant, Irrelevant, Oppressive, and Dangerous, and How We Can Turn the Tide. Jim Dennison is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by a really good friend of the show. He's the co-founder and the chief vision officer of the Denison Forum, but we're also excited, uh, primarily excited to talk to him about his new book, uh, which is already number six in Christian social issues on Amazon. It is called The Coming Tsunami, Why Christians Are Labeled Intolerant, Irrelevant, Oppressive, and Dangerous, and How We Can Turn the Tide. That author is Dr. Jim Dennison. Jim, how are you doing today? Brian, I am great. It is good to be back with you. So glad to be on air with you and Aubrey and honored by the conversation. Yeah, it's so good to have you back. And Jim, anyone who's listened to the show for any amount of time, they they do know you. But in case people are out there who don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself so our, our audience can get to know you a little bit better? 
Well, I should primarily talk about my grandchildren. I'm quite sure that's what I should be discussing. By far, the most important part of me would be these four perfect grandchildren. (laughs) The original sin skipped them somehow. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) But probably the more formal answer to your question. I founded Denison Forum back in 2009 to speak biblical truth to cultural issues. We now have five different brands. We have a total audience of 6.5 million. And within all of that, I do a daily article each day based on that day's news. goes out to 400,000 subscribers. 2.9 million in its social audience. And inside that space, my calling as a cultural apologist is to speak biblical truth to the issues of the day, equipping Christians to use their influence to change the culture. So it's in that context I wrote the book. It's in that context I do a lot of media. And it's because of that I'm so glad to have a conversation with you today. Well, we are so glad that you're with us. And again, the title of the book is The Coming Tsunami, Why Christians Are Labeled Intolerant, Irrelevant, Oppressive, and Dangerous and how we can turn the tide. And I know one of the things that you talk about or write about in the book, Dr. Dennison, is four earthquakes. And I would love for you to unpack what those earthquakes are uh, culturally and what you even mean by that. Yeah, thanks so much. So tsunamis are massive tidal waves you can see, usually caused by underwater earthquakes you can't. There was a tsunami, as you know, recently in the South Pacific caused by an underwater volcano. They can be caused by mudslides or meteors, but 80% of the time it sees underwater earthquakes. And so the book alleges that there have been four social earthquakes, if you want to call them that, that together are creating a tide of opposition we have never seen before in American history. The first, to answer your question, is a rejection of biblical truth, a claim that truth is personal, individual, and subjective. The Bible's a diary of religious experience you have no right to force on me. If you do, then you're intolerant, is essentially the idea. Moves to the second earthquake, which is a denial of biblical morality. Now we're thinking about the sexual revolution of the 60s. We're thinking about LGBTQ activism and the idea that the Bible is intolerant in the extreme. It's homophobic, bigoted, prejudiced, narrow-minded, or at least you are for the way that you're reading the Bible in that space. The third earthquake goes to critical theory and critical race theory, which is a very complex subject. I did an hour-long streamcast on that recently, but it alleges that Christians as a majority group are therefore, by definition, oppressors of the culture Mm. by virtue of their majority status. And then the fourth earthquake that we're just now starting to see in the academy and on the coast especially is a rise of a radical secularism, a radical replacement ideology it's being called, that says that Christianity is dangerous, Mm. that authenticity is the path to flourishing, religion causes 9-11s and clergy abuse scandals and spends money on buildings instead of people and heaven instead of earth. And so if you disagree, With the trajectory of the culture, you're homophobic, bigoted, prejudiced, and dangerous to society. We've not been called that before in American history. And that leads to all sorts of implications and and oppression and opposition that we're seeing in the culture today. And that's why, because of these underwater earthquakes causing the tsunami we can see. Uh, That's powerful. And Jim, uh, to keep the imagery going uh would you, as a as somebody who dives into this area of life on, on a daily basis, uh, are the earthquakes stronger now than they've ever been? Do you think that the uh, the pushback is is intensifying uh, currently? And do you think it's going to continue to intensify? Yeah, it's a great question, Brian. It is absolutely intensifying and will continue to do so. In some ways, these earthquakes feed each other. That's why the metaphor breaks down a little bit. It's because I can reject truth, objective truth, that I therefore can have my own sexual truth. And I can believe that your imposition of truth is oppressive and therefore 
dangerous. Well, all of this is coming together right now, congealing together in a way we've not seen before, empowered in part because of what's happening in the media. Social media gives me an ability I've never had before. Was a day I couldn't express my truth through books without going through editors and publishing process. Couldn't get a newspaper unless I was invited to do so. Couldn't get on this call, on this conversation without some kind of editorial process to be invited into it. Now my cell phone gives me access to the world. Now I can, on my own platform, trumpet my own positions in a way I've never been able to do before. I can curate my news so I can only listen to that which agrees with me. And I can amplify my position in this way. What we think of as traditional media used to be centered in objective reporting effect. Now, media makes money by knowing what audience its advertisers are trying to reach Hmm. and espousing the agendas that reach that audience for the sake of those advertisers. So that's why you've got Fox on one side and MSNBC on the other. You have various media outlets that now are not seeking objective truth. They're seeking to reach the audience their advertisers are wishing to to reach. So objective media is a thing of the past. Social media amplifies what we're discussing right now, and it all comes together in a way we haven't experienced before in our culture. Mm. Um, Dr. Dennison, you asked some really good questions as part of the titles uh, of the chapters in your book. And one of the questions that you ask is, are evangelical leaders under attack? And I feel like over the past two years, a lot of evangelical leaders would say yes. I'm very curious what your book has to say about that. You bet. Thank you. It's on two levels. One level has to do with evangelical leaders themselves who are seen as oppressive and dangerous and leading this movement toward being oppressive and dangerous and therefore facing cancel culture issues and all sorts of kind of pushback that we haven't seen before. Was a day when the pastor was the parson or the person or uh, and the church was what everybody went to on Sunday, or at least say they did. Well, now we're at a place where the church is seen as being oppressive by definition and pastors as being dangerous by definition. So that's part of it. And then there are threats that we've not seen before that are coming against evangelical leaders and institutions on an unprecedented level. The so-called Equality Act is one example of that. It criminalizes biblical morality in the context of LGBTQ activism. Was a day when everybody understood biblical morality to be essential to consensual morality and to democracy. Now we're in a day where biblical morality is seen as dangerous to LGBTQ individuals, and you can you have no right to claim First Amendment religious protection for that. I'm seen, because I'm unwilling to do a same-sex wedding, as being exactly as dangerous and prejudiced as if I wouldn't do an African-American wedding or a Latino wedding. My desire to claim First Amendment religious liberty protection for my beliefs is seen as being as wrong as if I were a KKK member claiming religious freedom protection to burn crosses in front yards. That was actually an analogy used in a Senate hearing on the Equality Act last year. And so there's this rising belief that we are so dangerous to society as to have no religious freedom protection for our beliefs and our biblical morality. And as I said, we've just never been here before. Yeah. And and Jim, I don't want to give too much away. We want people to buy the book, but let's turn this to then what's the solution for the church and for us as individual Christians? You wrote a fabulous book about civility and how we disagree respectfully. I'm sure that's part of it. But um, how should we be responding as churches and as individuals in this moment? Yeah, terrific question. As regards the four earthquakes, very briefly, the first, a denial of truth. We respond on the logic of it, first of all, to say there is no such thing as truth is to make a truth claim. 
No such thing as objective truth, and I'm objectively sure of it. Fails the practical test. If all truth is personal, individual, and subjective, does that make the Holocaust Hitler's truth? Does that make 9-11 Al-Qaeda's truth? But then I respond in personal relevance. When I show you the difference biblical truth has made in my life, you'll be drawn to that to make my truth your truth, and that's how you'll meet the truth. So we respond in relevance relative to truth. As regards biblical morality, we speak the truth in love. We're doing this as beggars helping beggars find bread. We're sharing biblical truth because it is best for us to live according to biblical morality. On the third that says we're oppressors by definition, we ought to be leading the fight against slavery, as it were, against intolerance in that context, against racism and bigotry and prejudice. Racism grieves the heart of God. It was Christians leading the civil rights revolution of the 60s. It was William Wilberforce leading the the destruction of slavery, the ending of slavery. We ought to be on the front of that to show that we're not oppressors, we're servants. Mm. As regards religion as dangerous, we need to be demonstrating all the value Christianity brings to the culture. Wouldn't be hospitals without Christianity. Wouldn't be most universities without Christianity. So it starts with me, Brian. How can I add value where I live? How can I make the difference where I live? How can I show the redemptive value of Jesus speaking the truth and love in my influence? Starts by demonstrating that this is a tsunami, not of oppression, but of opportunity to be desperate, to depend on Jesus, to ask God to bring a great awakening and let it start with me. That's such a good word. I can't uh, encourage people enough to go pick up Jim's book. It's called The Coming Tsunami, Why Christians Are Labeled Intolerant, Irrelevant, Oppressive, and Dangerous, and How We Can Turn the Tide. You can order Jim's book at thecomingtsunami.com. You can also learn more about the Denison Forum that Jim talked about earlier at denisonforum.org and connect with Jim on Twitter at Jim Denison. That's at Jim Denison. Jim, we always are greatly appreciative of the time you spent spend with us. Thanks for joining us today. Such a privilege. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Aubrey. God bless you and what you're doing this day. I'm grateful. You as well. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, I am Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Peter Ducey, he is a Fox News White House correspondent. Uh, He was at an event at the White House and President Biden was speaking about something altogether different. And as you ever see, right, the president ends and everyone starts yelling questions, even if they've been told, don't ask questions. Right. right? (laughs) Of course. And so Peter Ducey yells a question about inflation, the inflation issue, and basically asks if he thinks that that will be a detriment to the midterm elections. Will that hurt Democrats? Uh, And Biden uh, sarcastically kind of said, President Biden said, oh, yeah, like it's going to be an asset and then called him a stupid SOB. There you go. We'll go with that. Oh, okay. Okay. That's the clean version uh, of what he said. And obviously didn't answer the question and wasn't it wasn't a time to answer the question. So, Aubrey, uh, Twitter went kind of crazy with the fact that Joe Biden, President Biden, called this Fox reporter a stupid SOB. Uh, and it's caused a great amount of debate. Should he apologize? Is this wrong? Uh, what does this tell? What does this teach our kids and all sorts of other things? Lisa Ling was on The View. Uh, and sh- her her opinion was uh, very much pushed back on by the other hosts, Whoopi Goldberg, Joy uh, Behar, and the others. But listen to what Lisa Ling had to say. So, okay, so he's all oh, this stupid SOB, he says. 
It's, it's nothing compared it's to what Trump said. I, I, I agree with you, but we can't keep comparing him. Yes, yeah, you can. Trump. I, 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 I think you're so. right I mean, about that. I yeah, just, we can't keep and, 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 and really, it's not like you see. I mean, it, it, it wasn't. <laughs> there are stupid questions, but he was asking about inflation, which is a real issue, and the yes. midterm elections, which are right around but the corner. Again, it's not like if, he was asking but, about but something. It was a sarcastic question, though, right, Lisa? I mean, he's like, will, will, the, will that be a liability? Of course it's a liability. And he also asked... Listen, he's smart enough to know. The to exactly. That's what he wanted. He got what he wanted. He asked a question yeah. that wasn't worthy of him asking it. True, and, but, you know, true sometimes, but also the president's smart enough some, to know that he's standing in front of yes, a yes. lot of people with a microphone. That's why he didn't do it in front of everybody. All right, Aubrey, we're coming off an administration with a president who uh, often talked down to the press and other people yep. in some crass ways yep. and was kind of rightfully taken a task and Absolutely. roasted for it. Uh, what do you think the response should be to what President Biden did the other day? And is there a larger lesson here about who we are as a people culturally? Yeah, I'm actually a little bit surprised that there was any pushback for from Lisa Ling, because I understand, sure, the reporter might be annoying, might not be asking the questions or saying on topic. But I think everyone sort of knows, especially at that level, that that's what reporters do. And I'm not here to defend the reporter, but, you know, we one, we call Trump to task on these things. So we right. need to call Biden to task on these things. And two, you're the president of the United States of America. Like you might be thinking those things internally. <laughs> yes. You don't say them out loud. Like we don't allow our children to say those things out loud, to treat other people like that, to speak of other people like that. So certainly the leader of our nation should not be doing that. And if we look, we all make mistakes. But then an apology needs to happen. Now, you said there was sort of an apology, but then I heard it wasn't really an apology. Do you know the follow up on this? Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure, but it was your uh, your grinds my gears about a non-apology. apology. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. OK, uh, and, it was one of those. Uh, yes, the not the old non-apology apology. I'm and, sorry you were hurt. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry yeah. you got I'm sorry you got mad. <laughs> Yeah, and a couple different things I thought of when um, when I saw this. The first was this. This cuts at our hypocrisy here on mm. both sides here. If you were uh, a Democrat, if you hated President Trump and, and the way he talked and you constantly called him to task, uh, then then you've got to call your own guy to task here. Even if it was a one-off, you've got to say, nope, we've got to have that same line of civility. Yep. If you're a Trump supporter and you were like, tough talk, that's what it's like, you know, well, we're all so soft. Why do we care? Then you shouldn't care that President Biden did it, right? Yeah, it there kind you go. Of uh, both ways. Our producer just reminded us President Biden basically said to Peter Ducey, uh, look, it's nothing personal, man. So not really an I'm sorry. <laughs> That's <laughs> definitely not an I'm sorry. Uh, but Aubrey, I am concerned uh, in social media with our highest office, even within yeah. churches, what our kids are learning and just what we are as a culture now in the way we speak to one another, right? That we would say this out loud, the uh, uh, that we would say that we would demean people the way that the past administration or this did as well here. I do think these kinds of things, leadership wise, trickle down into the culture. Uh, I think they come down and they come down to their followers. They also come down to our kids, right? Like it just becomes part of our DNA. And I think that should really concern us. 
Yeah, I think it should concern us. And again, this is maybe even going back to our conversation with Jim Dennison or conversations you and I have said, I feel like we keep saying this again and again and again, like the low, I mean, this is like the lowest bar ever. Mm. Be a decent human being. Be nice. Like play nice kids. Like that's, and I, I do feel like, We've seen the loss of civility over time. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that this is like new, right? To have a president say something out of turn like this. But especially in the last two years, and especially for a president who said he's all about healing our nation, I just don't know why. I mean, obviously, it was a slip of the tongue. It shouldn't have happened. Probably it wasn't anything personal, but that sounds pretty personal to me. So anyway, sorry, I will move beyond what just happened with Biden and go back to what you were saying, which is... Yeah, I, I am concerned, too, that if even our the highest office in the land can't treat people with honor and respect, can't keep your mouth closed and just, you know, don't if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, <laughs> then how are our kids going to follow suit? And what is the right. state of the nation? And I, I don't know. I, I know it feels like a small thing, but I actually feel like this is sort of the problem in general right yeah. now is we've lost the ability to treat each other with respect and kindness. Yeah, I agree. Th- this lack of civility, I think, comes from the top down, right? If if you're if you're a it's we also know this, right? Our kids start to mirror us we, as parents like these things happen. And I think with the with our leaders, we see them on TV. We see them all the time. Uh, everyone's hearing what President Biden said here or what in the past President Trump used to say about the media and about other people. I think it just comes down. And I think we as Christians, let's leave it at this. We as Christians must be different than this, right? That's what Jim Dennison wrote in Respectfully, I Disagree. We need to uh, value civility. We need to yeah. hold up the the, uh, the value of treating other people well, uh, even those that we disagree with. And and recognize that's going against the tide of what's going on yeah, now. Yeah. So some of you might have laughed when you see this. I personally think this is emblematic of a bigger deal uh, and one that we need to speak against. Well, coming up next, why is it important to have tough conversations? I saw a tweet from a pastor down in Texas uh, who said some stuff around having tough conversations that I'd like to kind of process with Aubrey next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. One of the pastors that I follow on Twitter, I follow a bunch of pastors, but one who I've really come to appreciate is a guy by the name of, uh, I think I'll get his name right here, Josh Howerton, uh, senior pastor at Lake Point Church in Rockwell, Texas. He ironically was at the bridge in Tennessee where now Ian Simpkins is. Oh, wonderful. Uh, So that's kind of the six degrees of separation, right? Uh, but he tweeted something y- yesterday, I believe it was, about having tough conversations. And I've shared with you before that I don't necessarily do tough conversations well, although, uh, as a buddy of mine told me the other day, you're getting a lot better at this. Oh, <laughs> nice, nice. Well, I think part of it is out of necessity, right? You get older and you're in leadership and stuff and you just have to do it. Yeah. Uh, but let me read to you Josh's tweet. And I would love for you just to respond to it. And And ultimately, I want us to talk about why is it important to have tough conversations? When do we have them? Or at what point are there times where we just go, okay, nope, I'm going to let this go. And then maybe some tools for having tough conversations. So here we go. Josh Howerton, senior pastor at Lake Point Church in Rockwell, Texas, wrote this. Contrary to our instincts, hard conversations usually don't kill relationships. They save them. 
It's choosing the short, life-saving pain of surgery over the long-term fatal pain of cancer. What do you think about what Josh had to write there? You know, something that um, Kevin always says, and this reminds me of it, it, it he'll say, hey, it's going to hurt now or it's going to hurt later. Mm. Later is going to be worse. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's sort of that same, that same antidote that, that look, it's going to be hard, period. These conversations are never easy, especially based on your personality. Like, it can feel awful. And especially based on, like, your family of origin, sometimes it can feel really uncomfortable, but the I at least ideally now I know not every hard conversation goes beautifully, but ideally you are ultimately uh, choosing healing up front mm-hmm. rather than like a long term kind of relational virus that's going to end up destroying the relationship in the long term. But yeah. the hard part then is okay, we all sort of agree with that. How do you even start? Yeah. Yeah. That's the $64,000 question, especially for people like me. I I do think uh, there's a big, you, you brought out uh, kind of a big concept here. And that is this, that whether it be with hard conversations or whether it be with health, health decisions we make, or whether it be with whatever else it might be, hard money decisions. I don't know. Pick your thing. Yeah. It very, very rarely goes well to punt that difficult decision Uh, or conversation further down the road. Right. Right. If you're like, oh, you know what? I'll get healthy six months from now. You're just going to be in a worse spot. Yeah. Or if it's, you know what? We'll start budgeting in the summer. Okay. It's going to become more difficult. Right. Uh, I will have that hard conversation with an employee or a friend later on. It's usually going to grow. So what your husband told you there, I think is great wisdom, uh, but difficult uh, all right. When do you, uh, in your life, friends, family, church, whatever else it might be, are there times where you go, you know what? Uh, I'm going to. I'm a little bothered, or I've mm-hmm. got some feelings, but I'm going to swallow this, and we're going to move on. I'm. Not, it's not worth bringing up. I, help people understand. Are there even times where that's the right answer? You know, I think this has been. I, I'll just use my marriage as, as an example because Kevin and I have often talked talked openly about how we had to learn to do better communication and conflict. I feel like there was always this voice in my head that would say, pick your battles, pick mm-hmm. your battles. Mm-hmm. But then I wouldn't have any battles at all. And then little battles, like for here's an example. When we were v- very early married, Kevin did not put his dirty laundry in the hamper. He put it beside <laughs> the hamper. Okay? And I would never do that. <laughs> made me crazy to the point where I was like vehemently angry. I caught myself one day. This is, I mean, we were in our early 20s. I'm not proud of it. But I was so mad, I started jumping and stomping on his dirty laundry on the floor. <laughs> but we had never had a conversation about it. Yes. And so that's the thing where I kept saying to myself, pick your battles. This isn't a big deal. Pick your battles. Well, it was a big deal. And it yeah. became a big deal when it really didn't need to be. And so we had to learn like little things like that that seem hilarious now. One, I had to learn to let go of some control. And two, Kevin had to learn like, oh, it shows Aubrey love and respect when I just take the time to put things in the basket and not beside the basket. Mm -hmm. And so it was a, you know, I wouldn't say it was a compromise. I would say it was both of us being willing to put the other first, let go of some things. But we did have to have a conversation about it. And so I, yes, of course, there are things you have to go. 
okay, this isn't a big deal. I can deal with this on my own. But I think the the danger of that is that like marriages end over the hamper, right? Not right. over the affair. And so that's where you have to be careful of these little things becoming cancers, that's like good. Josh Howerton said, if you're not careful about it. Um, I, I will say just quickly, Brian, like some tips that Kevin and I or tools Kevin and I have learned over the years in marriage counseling, like about conflict is, um, you know, kind of knowing your go-to, like for me, mm-hmm. I would sort of stonewall Kevin and not talk when I was angry. That was not helpful. I would put mm-hmm. a wall between mm-hmm. us. Kevin would just get really, really angry and wait until it was a boiling point and then mm-hmm. blow up. Well, that's not helpful either. So we had to learn to sort of get ahead of those tendencies. But then I would say two things we learned to do that have been really helpful. One is to have a meta conversation about the conversation we're about to have. So to say, look, we're about to have a really hard conversation. We know this is going to be painful. Here we go. And just like sort of naming Mm. it before you do it allows you to have the conversation with mindfulness instead of letting it escalate. Because sometimes you start fighting over the laundry and soon you're fighting over like your mother-in-law last Thanksgiving. You know what I mean? So you can sort of name it and say, here's what we're going to talk about. Let's keep it on point and let's keep it calm. Let's walk away if one of us starts to get a little too like uh, rising in our emotion. Then the other thing is like a gentle and slow startup. So when you're having that conversation, be like, babe, I love you so much. I love this about you. I love your thoughtfulness in this area, this area, this area. This one thing is really like kind of, it's making me feel some things that I don't, it's making me tell a story about you that I don't think is actually true. It's making Mm. me feel like you don't respect me, but I know you do. So can we talk through this? And those little tips, I mean, again, it seems like these are kindergarten tips, but they're so helpful in hard conversations. Those are helpful. I like your line there. It's often about the hamper and not the affair. That's uh, that's good. Can we just pause and say you jumped on top of his dirty laundry? I did. I jumped on top of it and stomped all over it because I was so angry. That's I don't know what I thought that would do, but like I, I was showing him. I love the picture. I'm going to make it dirtier. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's really good. I think that's also a wonderful point that in marriage, it is so often the little things that build up that mm. – that, uh, lead to the distance, that lead to the anger, that lead to the resentment. And if you're not willing to deal, as Josh Howerton said here, uh, by having the con- hard conversation and getting rid of those little things, then they're going to become big things yeah. down the road. Yeah. And so if you're out there today and you just know there's that conversation you need to have, it, we're not saying it'll be easy, uh, but let us encourage you to engage uh, that conversation and hopefully there will be healing Well, coming up next, we're joined by Robin Chambers. She's the Executive Director of Advocacy for Children at Focus on the Family. And we'll be talking about the March for Life and the Sanctity of Human Life Month with her. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are so thrilled today to be joined by Robin Chambers. She's the Executive Director of Advocacy for Children at Focus on the Family. Focus on the Family is one of our partners here at Salem. And as a reminder, you can listen to Focus on the Family every weekday at 1130 a.m. right here at AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
But we are thrilled to be joined by Robin specifically to talk about the 2022 March for Life and the Sanctity of Human Life Month, something that Brian and I are really passionate about. So Robin, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your family, and then specifically more about your role at Focus on the Family? Yes, that's, um, I always laugh and say, you know, my title seems really long, and but my favorite title is Grammy. I am a grandmother of three. Oh, <laughs> um, awesome. Um, his uh, girlfriend um, had two un- unexpected pregnancies, and so uh, Thanksgiving life is very near and dear to me, and so I love being able to uh, live out my call that the Lord put on my life years ago through Focus on the Family. I've been with Focus for 29 years, and I'm married, and I have a son, and a daughter, and three amazing grandchildren, and uh, all three of those grandbabies, are, um, they would hate me saying that. They're not babies, they're teenagers, um, but they're why I do what I do at Focus on the Family. And Robin, I know we've had John before. It's great to have you on again. Uh, tell what the March for Life just happened in Washington D.C. Uh, I know you've been a part of that in the past. Uh, tell us about the March for Life and why is it such an important thing for the pro-life movement? I think for the pro-life movement, it's a way to visibly show your support for. Uh, the protection of women and their unborn children, you know, one of the things that always comes out, you know, this is, this is my ninth year um, of attending, and what I always see is a unity, and I see a commitment to, first and foremost, Christ. I see that in everything that's said and done. There's no anger. There's no yelling. Um, and I see this um, camaraderie in standing up, and we see mamas and daddies and babies and strollers, um, we see older people, and I've had the joy of talking to some of those those folks. And for them, again, it's that public, hey, we're here for you, whoever this woman is in this unplanned pregnancy. And this is our way of saying we are pro-life, we're not going away, and we're here to support those women and their children. So it's just a beautiful time of, um, again, just unity and marching for um, the very, very vulnerable among us, and that's our babies. Oh, that is so fantastic. And, and Robin, speaking of, of parents, Brian and I are both parents. We have a lot of parents who listen to the show. What are some ways that parents can begin to have pro-life conversations with their kids? Oh, great question. One of my favorite, actually. And um, I always say it starts very, very early. Uh, when we're talking to our children, we need to be very deliberate in the words that we're saying. Um, one of the things I often tell um, parents that I, I meet with is, don't say things that um, your children can pick up on as if it were negative. Um, I had a parent who told me she said something and then regretted it instantly. She said, oh, so-and-so's pregnant again, you know. And so even that was like, oh, oh is that not, that's not a positive that she's pregnant again? And so saying things like, oh, hey, did you hear Rebecca's pregnant again? Let's go over and see how we can support her. Or even things like, oh, hope it's a healthy baby. Well, that tells our children that children with special needs aren't as valuable. And so when you say things like that, you're kind of reinforcing a negative, uh, a kind of a negative connotation around life. And so when you say, hey, did you hear they're going to have baby with Down syndrome? Let's go over and see how we can support them. And that's one of those things that we say very, very often is always say congratulations. Always say, how can I support you? And I'm so happy for you. 
So you're building up positivity around life. And then you're constantly talking to your kiddos about, you know, God put you in mommy's tummy and God made you. And, you know, and you just go on and on through, you know, kind of that age and stage of what they're really ready to listen to. And Focus has amazing resources, um, even coloring books that we've designed to kind of walk your kiddos through what it means to be pro-life from the very earliest age. Oh, that's great. And how about churches? Aubrey and I, we, she just mentioned we're both parents. We're also both pastors. Uh, what can churches be doing, uh, both with the adults in their congregations, but even also with the kids in the congregation to kind of help them understand what it means to be pro-life and the importance of this topic? Absolutely. I think um, encouraging, one of the things my husband and I used to do, we've worked in youth ministry for many, many years. And we would always find ways to support our local pregnancy center. Maybe that was, you know what, we're going to go down and we're going to mow the, the lawns for them. Or, you know, we're going to clean up the leaves. You know, something that is a service project. And then you're slowly introducing those um, teenagers to uh, someone in their community who is there for the women. Um, go in and sort baby clothes or go in and do a mailing for them. And so you're showing them ways to become involved at their local level. I am so excited about the young people. I see they're very justice-minded. I saw a lot of those folks, at uh, young people at the March for Life, and they said to us, what can we do? How do we help? And so just churches being aware that the kids really want um, leaders to say to them, here's how you get involved. Here's how you can really impact your local community. And then for the pastors, and I know pastors have so much on their plates, but even being willing to have... um, Young women come in that are not married and maybe be pregnant. Um, you're opening your doors. You're loving on them. You are supporting that decision for life. Um, we have lots of resources for pastors. I'm just talking about it in an everyday conversation. It's so important. And one of the things I would challenge pastors to do is don't be afraid to talk about abortion, but always talk about it in a way that there's hope and healing through who they are in Christ. Um, there could be a woman in your congregation that's post-abortive, and we don't want her to feel, you know, additional shame and guilt, open your doors, invite her in and introduce her to um, the God of healing. Mm, So that's so good. And and Robin, just to kind of piggyback off of what you're talking about, ways we can encourage women. Let's say one of our listeners is walking with a friend who's facing an unplanned pregnancy and perhaps even an unwanted pregnancy. What would you say to her? Um, Again, congratulations. That that seems to um, diffuse some panic that she's feeling. Um, but then I would also say, you know what, there's time. Don't make um, a decision right now. Let's find someone who can um, give you all the information about parenting, uh, information about adoption. And yes, we are going to talk about abortion and what that does to you, what that does to your child. And you know what, there's a pregnancy center right here in your community that can walk alongside you and find you the resources that you need to make the best decision for you and we believe that best decision is life. And we connect her with that pregnancy center, offer to go with her. We hear women say, women who are post-abortive will say to me, if I had just had one person, it doesn't even have to be father of the baby, a friend, a coworker, a pastor, say to me, I'll go through this pregnancy with you, I would have made a different decision. Be that one person and come alongside her and find her the best information she needs at that moment. Wow. Wow. That's such great information for us. As a reminder, parents can download a Valuing Life from the Start free resource kit at FocusOnTheFamily.com. Robin Chambers is the Executive Director of Advocacy for Children at Focus on the Family. 
You can hear Focus on the Family weekdays at 11.30 a.m. on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. And Robin, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on and uh, take care. And thanks so much for helping get the message out about life. Absolutely. Be sure to check out other great pro-life resources at focusonthefamily.com slash pro-life. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And it's the end of today's show. Yes, and as is. you know, at the end of every show, we love to leave you with something inspiring, challenging, or encouraging. Brian, this is a hard story, but it I think is. it's an encouraging one. As you know, yesterday was the two-year anniversary of Kobe Bryant's uh, helicopter crash, mm-hmm. where he died tragically along with a group of other people. And it's uh, when I heard that it was two years ago, I was a, like a little bit shocked by that yeah. because it feels like it just happened. And in other ways, like most things post pandemic, it feels like it happened 10 years ago. Yeah, it really happened a month before the pandemic kind of took everything over. Yeah. And I'll never, I, I will always believe that the death of Kobe Bryant and the way that it happened is a uh, where were you when that happened? Mm. Moment. Like, I, I think a lot of people, especially sports fans, uh, know they remember that that had a huge effect on me. Like Kobe yeah. Bryant is literally was literally the same age as you and I. Like, Oh, I didn't senior. know that. Wow. And so that family, what he was doing in retirement, but also, you know, our, our athletes seem invincible. And yeah. so uh, I, I can tell you uh, with great detail exactly where I was when mm-hmm. I heard that news and then mm-hmm. I watched everything that came on. So yeah, I think those that was one of those tragedies that says it was a where were you moment when you heard this. And uh, Brian, if you don't mind sharing that, where were you when you heard the news? Yeah, I remember uh, we. I was uh, sitting in my living room. It was a Sunday afternoon. Uh, so I was just home from church and my, my son, I was coaching his basketball team, his park district basketball team, and we were about to go to a game and I was just scrolling on Twitter sitting and I saw just the initial TMZ report that somebody said, hey, there's a report code, right? And then Twitter just started flying. And I just remember being like grabbing my son and being like, hey, Kobe mm. Bryant, I think just died. And we turned mm. the TV on. No, I remember the chair I was sitting in. Mm. And again, I think it has a lot to do with the same age. And I'm much more yeah. of a sports fan than you. So yeah, I kind of grew up, not grew up, but like the same time of my life, I was watching him late yeah. teenage years, 20s. Uh, and then just once it became uh compounded by his daughter died, other yes. girls from this basketball that team and their parents, yeah. the assistant coach who we're about to talk about. Yeah. Uh, I think all of that then just com- like just made it that much more profound. Yeah. It, you know, I, the crazy thing, Brian, is I was actually in Newport Beach, California when this happened. So oh, I was right. literally right there. And so it was like, I, I, I go, of course, you know, I'm not a big sports fan, but mm-hmm, obviously mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant is an icon in the NBA. And so to be there while this was happening was just such an unbelievable thing. And, and you know, anytime you hear of a tragic death, especially from like a helicopter, something that's so shocking and children being involved, like it just makes you sick to your stomach. Like Absolutely. It's, it's just one of those devastating, devastating stories. Um, but what's interesting, I don't know if I would say this is interesting, Brian, but one of the uh, women who died in the same helicopter crash mm-hmm. was Christina Moser. She was the assistant coach on the high school team. And her husband, Matt Moser, is a musician and a songwriter based in Southern California. He was recently on Good Morning America talking about, look, two years later, how he has risen above the fog of his grief. And I thought it would be 
um, a way to honor them and a, and a meaningful conversation to listen to what he is doing now um, in the middle of his pain and suffering. So let's go ahead and take a listen to Matt Moser's story. I just fell in love with her the minute I heard her laugh. From that day on for, uh, until the day she died. Losing your wife and raising three kids without her, is, it's, a, it's a challenge. It doesn't seem real, but it's very real. I try to focus on my wife before. I try to focus on my wife and her life and stay away from, from the stuff that's too painful. I think the most important thing is that Christina was an amazing mom. She, she was give anything for her children. The last thing she did was text was text the nanny about our, our little one who had a fever. And from the helicopter, she said, please give extra attention to Ivy this morning because she, she has a fever and I'll be right back. I had worked late the night before, so she kissed me and she said, I love you. And I didn't realize I was still sleeping and she walked out the door and I I, I kind of came to when I heard the door close, but I I, I was kind of, I didn't wake up. I wish I would have, it was kind of in a fog. And then uh, I noticed that it was a you know foggy day and she was really good about keeping me informed about when they landed and where they were and so it was, I had a little bit of concern because I didn't hear from her, and I, uh, I, I, I didn't think the worst. I kind of said, "Ah, she's fine. She's probably just, you know, busy." And then um, I got a call from one of my bandmates, and uh, that was then the rest is just kind of uh, shock. I still feel an incredible connection with my wife, even though she's not here. I have to believe that she's, you know, having spent time with her has made me a better person and it's going to make my children better people, you know, if we can get through this. Okay, so, you know, I, I think that this is such a powerful, powerful thing because here's a man grieving his wife and grieving in a, a really public way, yeah, which I think yeah. adds a layer. Like you've got the whole nation tuning into this story. I'm sure, maybe I'm wrong, but I am sure there were uh, reporters on his doorstep, you know, and in the middle of his grief, probably feeling like he didn't have privacy. And here's a man just grieving his wife. And and all, and did he lose a daughter as well? No, just his wife. Just his... Uh, just. I, that sounded way too flippant. But uh, she was the assistant coach, so none of her kids were on the team. That's right. And I do remember one of her daughters was going to be on the airplane or the mm -hmm. helicopter that day, but was sick with a fever and stayed home. So mm -hmm. that was one of those wild stories where you know, you, you know, praise God for that fever in a sense. Yeah. But um, the here's the incredible part of his story is that over the past two years, Matt has launched the Christina Mauser Foundation, a foundation that supports single mothers, women and girls in sports through scholarships and other financial aid. And this is a way that he has coped 
with his devastating loss. Mm -hmm. And I I think why I wanted to bring this up, Brian, is obviously you've been through hard times. I've been through hard times. Most of our listeners have walked with someone who's been through difficulty or have been through difficulty themselves. And what we do find in a lot of these stories is there is something about like physically doing something with the pain or in the pain that helps you find healing. This is a great example, him starting the foundation. Um, And uh, Brian, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that concept? Yeah. I, you know, it's still, I'm sure he still wakes up uh, in tears. I'm sure his kids still cry themselves to bed at night. I'm sure he still wants, I guess what I want to make sure to say is no matter how well the, the foundation goes, it doesn't, mean that it's okay that his wife yes like she's that's right still dr- but we do have choices and i've never suffered anything remotely this close but right. we this large i mean uh but we do have choices in the midst of our grief to uh uh in how we're going to respond and i think mm. oftentimes what you hear of people is one of the most powerful things is like what he's doing i'm going to make a difference in other people's lives through my wife's passions yeah and it doesn't bring her back, but it keeps her memory going and it gives us something positive to look to. I mean, Brian, you know, he's raising three of the kids now as a single dad Unbelievable. and all this stuff. And so I do think there is – we hear these stories all the time. It doesn't make the tragedy easier or better. Right. But what it does do is it can give it some sort of um, – Redemption, and it can yeah. give it some sort of meaning that yes. says, and, and it, it allows your loved one to kind of go on even yeah. in your loss. And so, I, I'm really impressed by what he's doing. He, he he figured out a way to start an organization, a foundation targeted at what his late wife was passionate mm. about, and I think that's really to be applauded. Yeah, and and um, you can actually learn more about the Christina Mauser Foundation at ChristinaMauserFoundation.org. But I I wholeheartedly agree with you. There is something really powerful about making meaning from pain. And I I don't know what that human instinct is. I do think it's something God has given us. But Mm -hmm. when someone's death, especially that tragic, feels meaningless and it feels like there's no there's no redemption, there's no hope, there's no light in that darkness, that just feels like you'll never move on. But somehow that ability to to find meaning, to make meaning, to help other people out of a loss does bring us healing, does bring us hope. And of course, like you said, Brian, it doesn't make the pain go away, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but there is something in that that I think develops resiliency in us and I think is a really powerful part of just what it means to be a human being who's That's grieving. Right. And right. so I thought this would be an inspiring story for us to hear. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.